We are in a study of Paul's letter to the Colossians. And if you have a Bible and you'd like to turn there with me, we're coming to about the middle of chapter 1, studying it under the heading of a Christian worldview. And what this has to teach us about our understanding of life itself and our place in it. I'm going to pick up reading in verse 15, uh, reminding us of who Christ is and... um, Then uh, we'll be looking specifically at verses 20 through 23 as he turns from Christ to us and what this has to tell us then about our life and where we're going in it. So uh, from Colossians chapter 1, here now from verse 15. He, that is Jesus Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh, through death, to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight, if indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Let us pray together then. Our Father in heaven, even as we have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so now we pray that you would teach us to walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, and abounding in it with thanksgiving. We pray that you would uh, use this word for good in our lives, that we might remember the great purpose for which all this has happened, that we might uh, truly have our heart set on Uh, being presented before you on that great day, complete in Christ Jesus, with all things being fulfilled. How we long for all things to have their final fulfillment and culmination in our Lord Jesus, in whom we pray. Amen. Well, uh, in Alaska, the land where dreams and schemes sometimes come true, two new bridges were approved to be built, at least in the house... uh, of Representatives National Highway Bill of 2004. One of those bridges was supposed to replace the short ferries that connected the tiny town of Ketchikan, a town of less than 8,000 people, to an island with 50 residents uh, and the community's airport. But the massive bridge was going to soar 200 feet over the water, just 20 20 feet short of the Golden Gate Bridge. Uh, a magnificent uh, project that was originally projected to cost $200 million. But by the time construction on the road actually began, 
already the cost had doubled to $400 million for that road, uh, for that bridge. A as you might have guessed, the uh, chairman of the House Transportation Committee was the lone representative from Alaska. Okay. Um, well, the other approved bridge that year was set to span Anchorage and the port uh, two miles away, a port with one tenant and almost no homes or businesses. And the projected cost of that second bridge? Nearly two billion dollars. Billion. Critics called these, quote, bridges to nowhere. And they became, as you, some of you will remember, a subject of intense national criticism and debate. The, the headline of the New York Times article in 2004 read, built with steel, perhaps, but greased with pork. Well, people looked at this, at this huge, huge undertaking, this massive project, such an enormous multi-year undertaking, and said, how could such a cost possibly be justified? All of this to go where? It's a very reasonable question. And people rightly ask it about a road, but you know where they don't often ask it? They don't ask it about their own lives. Where's it going? This great multi-year undertaking, this busyness called life, is it all just a bridge to nowhere? Just where is this life of yours going? That's going to be our big worldview question for the day. And if you say, uh, David, um, what's a worldview? Well, a worldview is how we answer all the greatest questions in life, things that embrace our deeply held values and commitments and expectations about the world and our place in it. It uh, gives us kind of a, a map that directs our choices and our direction. And, you know, often a worldview is frankly more, more, more frequently uh, caught than taught. Uh, th that is to say, we, we just kind of uncritically accept what everybody else thinks and how everybody else is living without giving it uh, much much reflection. In fact, many people rarely give the great questions of their lives much thought and really almost never give it serious thought in a busy culture, a pleasure-seeking culture like ours, where it is so easy to stay busy. Well, people don't stay up at night worrying about the real questions of life, but that's why you're here. So let's, let's go. Uh, this letter to the Colossians, as we've seen right from the beginning, challenges the culture's deeply held assumptions, their culture and our culture. It, it rebuilds our world and life view from the ground up on a solid foundation, namely Jesus Christ, from whom and through whom and to whom are all things. And today we're going to consider this big question of our direction, our destination. Where, where's my life going? All this work, all this expense, all this labor, what's it all for? Where is it going? Paul directs us now in this passage, as you'll, you'll see, first to look back to what Christ has done in the past, where we come from, and then to look forward to what that means for our future, where we're going. And finally, he tells us what that means for us right now. Past, future, present. And I'll uh, try to make this memorable for you uh, to give you one word to remember all three of these by. All, each one starts with a P. 
get our literations artful aid. Uh, we'll begin with our past. And the word that I'll direct you to is peace. Our past is what we look at first, and the word is peace. Um, verse 20, as we pick up then where we left off last week. He has made peace through the blood of his cross. Peace through the blood of his cross. Through, in the body of his flesh, through death, he has made peace, as he says, uh, to emphasize in the second verse here. So, this is the first step, if you like, on a bridge that's truly going somewhere. Paul begins by looking back and describing a sadness that's very important on the road to happiness and glory. You, verse 21, who were once alienated and enemies in your mind in wicked works, yet now he has reconciled. This is the peace he has made. Reconciliation is, of course, the healing of a relationship. If, if we had fought and had fallen out, if we had hard feelings, enmity against each other, we would need reconciliation. We would need someone to bring peace where there is estrangement and enmity. And this is what Jesus has done. Um, you know what it's like to feel estranged and alienated from others. In fact, uh, people seem to be feeling more and more that way today. Don't know all the reasons, but there seems to be more and more of a feeling of not belonging, of feeling out of place, of not fitting in. No, it's not just you, but maybe it is just you. You don't fit in. There's, there, it's the reason for much unhappiness and despair. But Paul tells us that there is a much worse alienation, an alienation that is at the root of other kinds of alienation, an alienation from God. And enmity toward God. We are just out of place in his presence. We don't fit in. We, we don't belong to him. And so Paul first describes an alienation, an enmity of mind, which he elsewhere elaborates on and explains this way to the Romans, that although men knew God, they didn't glorify him as God, nor were they thankful. They became futile in their thoughts. And their foolish hearts were darkened. They, they just didn't want to keep God in their minds. And godless minds then give way to godless lives. Or as Paul describes it here, wicked works. So here is this gulf, this, this separation, uh, alienation and enmity. On God's part, he's perfectly holy. And he has, therefore a righteous, settled wrath against everything that's evil. And, and here are we, with an unborn rebelliousness that's always expressing itself in doing what we know we shouldn't do or not doing what we know we ought to have done. And our human race is therefore born under this double curse that not only do we thoughtlessly break God's laws, but we even deceive ourselves of the true extent of our guilt because God is just not in our mind. It doesn't seem so bad. This is the first step, I say, on a bridge to happiness. This is the bad news that's going to be the way to good news. That here we are, condemned by, by sin, estranged in mind. God can't compromise his holiness, and we can't escape our sin. 
What can be done? The wages of sin is death. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. But then, his point is here, into that great gulf that separates God and man comes the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ that, that bridges the gulf. The, the Lord Jesus, who is himself both God and man, brings us together. For he can both die and he can die a death that he alone can die as the Lamb of God who can take away the sins of the, whole, of the world. It's there at the cross that God's love and God's justice kiss. Where sins are paid, sinners are reconciled. And here's the important emphasis here. You notice at the cross, he has made peace. Past tense. Past tense. You were reconciled. Are you at peace? Do you feel reconciled? Because it has been done. Here it is again, chapter 2, verse 13. You being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive with him, having forgiven you all your trespasses. Here is our joy and confidence that at the cross he has put our sins away. It's stated this way in Hebrews 10, 14. By one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Think about that. All your sins, yesterday, today, tomorrow, forever. By one offering, he has taken those away, perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Your sins are cast as far as the east is from the west. Brother or sister, Jesus Christ has set you free. He has made peace. He's reconciled you to God. The Bible also reserves some of its most thrilling and dramatic language. It speaks about God burying our sins in the depths of the sea, trampling them under his feet, remembering them no more. And uh, here in Colossians, particularly vivid here in chapter 2, taking everything that was against you and nailing it to the cross of Jesus. You know, when you were condemned in the Roman world, they, they had a sign of your charges against you. The, the laws you have broken, the, the guilt that was yours, that was above you on the cross. Can you imagine that being taken off of your cross and nailed onto Jesus' cross? That's the picture that's here. And therefore, God's people in the pages of Scripture sing with joy and wonder at this full and final forgiveness which God has lavished upon us because of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Revelation 1, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. It's a joyful, happy, glorious thing in the Bible, brothers and sisters. Somebody says, well, I don't know. I just can't believe that God loves me. I'm too unworthy. Well, the Bible doesn't assure you, like people might today, oh, don't worry, 
don't worry, you're being too hard on yourself. Oh, no. The Bible faces the reality of sin, and it says that God, knowing the worst about us, loved us and sent his son to die for our sins. That's the point. People say, oh, I don't know, I just don't love God enough. I don't trust him enough. I don't obey him enough. And Christians afflict their consciences. Well, uh, frankly, that is too bad. But you must understand God loved you when you didn't love him at all. God loved you when you didn't trust him at all. God loved you when you didn't obey him at all. Christ has died for the ungodly. God justified the ungodly. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is what has happened. He wants you to begin your journey by first looking back and seeing where you've come from. You've been reconciled in Jesus. He has made peace, believer. This is your past. We have learned where we've come from in point one, and that Christ has made peace. Now we're told where we're going to and shown our future. The P word for the day is presented. Presented. He's done all this, verse 22, to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. To present you holy, blameless, and above reproach. Your days now have a destiny. You're not on a bridge to nowhere. Here's your destination, or as he puts it in chapter 3, that when Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Appear with him in glory, without taint, without shame, without blame. You will never again be in a hopeless situation, O Christian. In your troubles, you are to remember the rest you are soon to enter. In all your battles, remember the victory that is soon to be yours. In all your longings, remember the perfect satisfaction that soon awaits. In the darkness of your life, you are to hold fast the prospect that you will soon be opening your eyes upon the very glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And we look forward to being everlastingly overwhelmed by his majesty and love, his holiness and power, his joy and his grace, and to be transformed by that joy. And so in the second half of the letter, Paul goes on to explain just how practical and powerful this future orientation is to our daily life. You say, well, how practical could it be? I mean, is that just like a pie in the sky by and by or something like that, right? Um, well... Here's how practical it is. Slaves are addressed in chapter 3. And they're told, whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. For you serve the Lord Christ. This future gives meaning and purpose to the days of hard and thankless labor where there's nothing but injustice and misery. And it says, you know, just you, just you look ahead a little on this bridge. This is all not going nowhere. The Lord will reward you. A heavenly reward will enrich every day of your earthly labor. In fact, in every trial, sorrow, and pain, 
We know that the great questions of your life and mine have all been answered in the most wonderful, certain, delightful way. All the big questions of your life. Your future is certain and happy beyond words. The future gives you a durable, deep happiness which the world can't give you and can't take away from you, even on your worst day. Your life, chapter 3, verse 3, is hidden with Christ in God. You were made for a deep and unconquerable love, for the pleasure and enjoyment of all his good gifts. And all of this and more is what the Bible calls life. And that's where your road is going. You're already on the bridge. Eternal life is what stretches out before you. Um, what, what, what practical use is this? Well, to bring us worship, chapter 3, singing with grace in our hearts. It's to bring us a profound humility. Who are we to receive such mercy? It's to bring us love, joy, and peace. You know, we who have been forgiven much, Jesus says, should love much. Knowing our sins, past, present, and future, have been nailed to the cross. What peace of conscience. We look back with, with regret, with shame, in the middle of the night, with angst. But then we remember what Jesus has done for us and the promises he's given to us. And the more that we live in the light of our freedom and purpose, the more joy we will have in the days to come. I mean, if you knew that one year from today, you would inherit a very large fortune. I might want to see you afterward if that's the case, by the way. Um, if you were going to inherit that, you would be thinking often about what would be coming to you. And there would be a lightness in your step, wouldn't there? Even on bad days, that wouldn't discourage you quite as much because you knew that your condition was about to improve. Well, and that just for, what, a few more years. Um, how much more an eternal world of joy? People today are anxious. They're fearful for the future. They say, what if some virus... Uh, is, is going to spell the end of mankind. What if it's going to end with an asteroid? Um, well, here's God's word to you. Here's your future. I should close with this today. He is able to keep you from stumbling and present our word for today. Present you faultless. Before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Point two, your future, presenting you holy, blameless, above reproach in his sight, the glory in Christ. We've considered the past, we've considered the future, we come third to what this means for the present. The present, we've seen peace, we've seen uh, present, present, we're gonna see perseverance. Perseverance, that's what it means for the present in our, in our passage. He's saying, don't jump off the bridge. Uh, verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel. So grounded refers to the firmness of one's foundation. Steadfast describes the firmness of your grip on the foundation. Right? I mean, you could have a firm foundation, but, we, but be wearing slippery shoes. Um, or you could have great grips on, but still be 
standing in sinking sand. You need both good ground and a good grip. <clears throat> and he says, then he adds, not moved away from the hope of the gospel. You need some good grit. Grit, not moved away. A resolve to hold on to the hope of the gospel that is yours, no matter the opposition. Stay on good gospel ground, get a good grip, show good gospel grit. The present calls for perseverance. Um, if indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel. Now you notice that Paul doesn't say what uh, too many people, especially in America, say, um, that you know, once you've made a decision for Christ, once you've prayed that prayer, once you've said those magic words, you're good, no matter what. You may live like the devil, but don't worry, you're safe in the Lord. That is never the biblical teaching. Salvation is only ever promised to those saints who persevere, if indeed you continue. You say, David, can I lose my salvation? Well, absolutely not, but you, you can lose, um, sorry, uh, absolutely not, that's a subject for another sermon, but I tell you today, although you can't lose your salvation, neither can you lose what you never had. Um, Charles Spurgeon somewhere, couldn't look it up, uh, tells the story about uh, uh, some drunkard stra staggering uh, down the road, and he says, oh, Pastor Taylor, I'm one of your converts. He says, I can well believe it, because you're not one of God's, right? Um, because, as we've said often here, those for whom Christ died also received the Holy Spirit, as the down payment on their eternal life. And therefore, there is a perseverance of the saints. A believer may, like Peter, deny the Lord for a time. He may lose his first love, like the Ephesians. He may be overtaken in a sin for a time, like Abraham was. Or continue even in rebellion for some time, as David did. But the Lord keeps us in order that we persevere. But persevering is how it is described. That is to say, even though it is the Lord who keeps us, the fact is the believer must endure. He's called to overcome, to persevere. Here it is in chapter 2, verse 6. As you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith as you've been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men according to the principles of the world, and not according to Christ. This is the bridge to life, if you like, and uh, don't jump off the bridge. It calls for perseverance in the face of um, falsehood, uh, opposition, hostility. Uh, the call to the believer is to be grounded, steadfast, not moved away from the hope of the gospel. Well, with this brief overview of the passage, for the rest of the time, I would now like to consider what this might imply for the Christian worldview, and what if we don't believe it? I mean, what if it's, what if it's not true? Perhaps the most famous scene in William Shakespeare 
um, begins with those words, to be or not to be, that is the question. In that scene, Hamlet, torn by loneliness and guilt, contemplates ending his life. But he decides against it simply because he does not know what that will bring. Will death, he asks, be like a sleep, a dreamless sleep that will end his heartache? He can't be sure. Maybe death isn't extinction at all. And if life goes on after death, it may be even worse for him. And Hamlet shrinks back, afraid. A fear that has been with our race since the beginning. And we do shrink back from that king of terrors, as the Bible calls it. It makes us afraid. We don't like to contemplate. But we must. Where are you going? It's such an important question. It's not one that's polite to ask nowadays. We live in a death-denying society, and so the modern worldview, frankly, doesn't think about death at all. It, 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 the worldview seeks, the, Amer the, the American worldview in modern-day America seeks to have this completely out of our minds at all times, which is why, for instance, the vast majority of American adults, adults don't have a will why we find death so hard to face or even to contemplate when it happens, why Americans spend billions of dollars every year on creams and lotions that slow the aging process or promise to, but they don't spend five minutes contemplating where they're going and what happens when they finally lose that fight, as they must. Today I'm going to spend with you that five minutes. Where are we going? Perhaps there's nothing, someone will say. We're not going anywhere. We die, we dissolve, that's it. So what? What does it matter? Practically speaking, to our life today. What does it matter? Well, uh, let's ask our friend Alex Rosenberg again, whom I introduced you to in his uh, uh, great book, The Atheist's Guide to Reality. He himself is an atheist, writing to his fellow atheists. He's a philosopher um, of some note. and. Uh, he, he asks important questions like, um, what happens when we die? He says, everything pretty much goes on as before, except us. What then is the purpose of the universe? There's none. What's the meaning of life? Ditto. Why am I here? Just dumb luck. Does history have any meaning or purpose? It's full of sound and fury, but signifies nothing. Why should I be moral? You say, what's the connection there? Well, well frankly, look, if there's no judgment, if, if there is no moral judgment of human life, if there's no lawgiver, except uh, maybe our society or our DNA or our own conscience, it's, it's, it's a good question. Why should I be moral? Why should I be moral? He says, well, because it makes you feel better than being immoral. I might add, except when you don't, except when it doesn't. Uh, I never saw the TV drama Breaking Bad about a high school teacher who descends into the underworld of drug manufacturing and dealing, but I did see an interview with its creator, Vince Gilligan, uh, an article anyway. Um, 
Vince Gilligan, the, the creator of Breaking Bad, he says, you know, if, if, there's, if there's no such thing as cosmic justice, what's the point of being good? That's the one thing that no one has ever explained to me. Why shouldn't I go rob a bank, especially if I'm smart enough to get away with it? What's, what's stopping me? That's when he, you kind of say the quiet part out loud, right? That's what makes his, his drama so interesting to people. He's asking a question that many other people are asking today. As more people in our generation don't believe in God and they say, look, uh, I mean, you know, we're here today, gone tomorrow. It's just a bunch of chemical reactions after all. Like, why, why shouldn't we do what we please? Probably the most famous atheist of the 20th century was Bertrand Russell, Nobel Prize winner. Um, he explained the nature of a worldview without God this way. Such in outline, but even more, void of meaning, is the world that science presents for our belief. Man is the product of causes that had no prevision of the end they were achieving. His origin, his hopes and fears, his loves and beliefs are all but the outcome of an accidental collocation of atoms. All the labors of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system. And, he writes, the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. Only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. People don't think about it, but I'm presenting to you the starkness of the choice. The reason why this is important for a worldview. I said earlier that people give very little thought to the great questions of life. The truth is they've convinced themselves that such answers don't even exist. I mean, universities still teach ethics and humanities and so forth, but uh, then they say, look, if there's no God, all purpose and morality and every other ideal is just a chemical reaction that's in a brain today and is dissolved tomorrow. We, we, we have trouble facing it. We, we have trouble talking about the meaninglessness of life in this worldview. But just because we don't talk about it as Americans doesn't mean we don't feel it. As, for example, we are living through an epidemic of drug abuse and other self-medicating, if not actually self-destructive behavior as we seek to escape the darkness of this reality. We may not talk about it, but we feel it. Americans spend well over $200 billion every year on mental and emotional health, and if the great increasing cost is any indication, we are getting much worse and not better. Certainly, suicide rates have skyrocketed, increasing 36% between 2000 and 2018, not including drug overdoses. I won't even talk about what the pandemic did. Where are you going? Is that not an important question? Where is your life going? What's, what's your answer?
Because what hangs on your answer is, in fact, the ultimate value and purpose of life, if there is any. The foundations of morality and justice and any real possibility of hope and joy. And that's why this question is so important to our Christian worldview, as all of those answers and more have been answered in the most delightful, joyful way we could conceive. And that's why someone said that only those who are prepared to die are actually prepared to live. If you really want to live, you have to go to the author of life. You have to go to the one who himself died and rose again and lives forevermore. It's him that you need today. And I would love to pray with you later and to point you to him if that's what you need. If not, I've hoped I've given you something to think about and a rock in your shoe. But I would love it today if your life could have a whole new direction and destination and you could leave here this day knowing where you're going. Because it says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Is that what you need? You don't need me, you need him. And what a difference it makes. Well, in conclusion, I would like to give you one practical illustration of the power of such hope. I spent a lot of time now talking about the power of despair to ruin a life. I'm gonna end on a more positive note. I'd like to tell you about one of the most influential Christians, I think probably in the history of the world, but certainly of the 19th century. A man you might not otherwise know, a man who's named, uh, named Anthony Ashley Cooper. Um, better known perhaps as the Earl of Shaftesbury, the seventh Earl of Shaftesbury. Um, very vigorous Christian politician. When he died, uh, the Times acknowledged him as the man who, quote, who changed the whole social condition of England. Um, his, his great work was by his own admission uh, merely a service to his Lord Jesus Christ. In particular, uh, toward the end of his life, he, he said, I don't think that in the last 40 years, I have lived one conscious hour that was not influenced by the thought of the Lord's return. He was every day just thinking about what it would mean to, to see the Lord, to appear with him in glory, to have finished his race, to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. He did everything because he knew that his labor was not in vain in the Lord. That'll get you through a lot of difficulties. That'll help you go through a lot of dark days. To know for sure that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. This man was called the poor man's earl because of his care for the people. When he died, tens of thousands of people from every walk of life lined the route where they carried his body to Westminster Abbey. Representatives of the homes, asylums, schools, societies that he founded were carrying banners. And on those banners were emblazoned sentences from Matthew 25, the day of judgment. 
I was hungry and you gave me food. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was in prison and you came to me. It's a sight to behold. Shortly after, the Duke of Argyle gave a political speech and he said, My lords, the social reforms of the past century have not been due to a political party. They have been due to the influence, the character, and the perseverance of one man. I refer, of course, to Lord Shaftesbury. Well, he was pointing to the wrong man. Because there was another man, of course, to whom Lord Shaftesbury himself looked. A man whose word sustained him through trial and tribulation. A man whose, whose word gave hope to Lord Shaftesbury, compassion, diligence. Another man behind all that effort and perseverance to whom he looked every single day. And as he said, probably he did not spend a single conscious hour in 40 years without thinking about that day in the future to come. His favorite verse of the whole Bible was the second to last one in the scriptures. Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. That was his hope, his life, the secret to his vigorous work. Do you know that hope? Brother, sister. Have joy in your journey. You see where you've come from, the peace that Christ has made. You see your future. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you too will appear before him in glory. You see the call for the day. Persevere. Look to him. And we conclude this study with those words that are preserved in the ancient language of those first Jewish Christians, Maranatha. Come, O Lord. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we have received our life from you, and we would love again to know how to give it back to you in such a way that you should be glorified and pleased, that we should rejoice and be satisfied. We pray that you would keep us from being conformed to this world and the death that living a purposeless life is in truth. Transform us by the renewing of our minds. May you prove to us what is your good, pleasing, and perfect will. Give us grace to think soberly about that day, that great day of our resurrection, when we open our eyes and behold the Lord in glory. And may you continue to deal to each one a measure of faith that looking unto Jesus, we might consider him who endured such sufferings that we too might persevere in the race of our calling. It's in him that we pray. Amen. Well, let's stand together, please, and we will sing a psalm of perseverance of our...